someone like Imran Khan who says that uh, terrorism has nothing to do with Islam is banking on the uh, ignorance of the people who hear him and uh, counting on their not knowing what is taught in the Quran and in the Sunnah, the, uh, the teachings of Muhammad. The uh, Quran actually says to fight them, that is the unbelievers, until religion is all for Allah. That is chapter 8, verse 39. You hear nowadays that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. And while that may not be true, if it is true, it is not because people are converting in large numbers to Islam because they see its wonders and they are impressed by its wisdom. Rather, there is large number, there is a growing number of Muslims because of the fact of Islamic polygamy and the many, many numbers of children that many Muslims have. That is why it's uh, possibly the fastest growing religion. But in history, there's another factor as well. And that is that the state of the non-Muslims in the Islamic societies was so degraded and so difficult with such grinding poverty, harassment and discrimination as stipulated in Islamic law. Remember that verse that I quoted to you before, chapter nine, verse 29 of the Quran, which says fight uh, against the people of the book until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, the question at hand is in regard to the history of jihad, and this is only a matter of interest to us today, aside from historians, because, of course, of jihad activity all around the world today. And many people contend that what it is is an, uh, that it is an aberration, that it is uh, a violation of the teachings of the Quran and Muhammad, and that previously throughout history, we have seen peace between Muslims and non-Muslims and such that no one should speak about uh, terrorism as Islamic. To do so would be Islamophobic. As a matter of fact, the uh, uh, Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, has just quite recently accused the West of associating Islam with terrorism, uh, as if the West invented this association. And so this is uh, a question that's of very pressing moment for anyone who wishes to understand what is happening in regard to uh, Muslims in India and elsewhere around the world. Uh, in order to understand the jihad violence that is taking place around the world, one must first understand that the jihadis themselves justify their actions and make recruits among peaceful Muslims by invoking the teachings of the Quran and the uh, state statements attributed to Muhammad in the Islamic Hadith, that is reports about Muhammad's words and deeds. So someone like Imran Khan who says that uh, terrorism has nothing to do with Islam is banking on the uh, ignorance of the people who hear him. and. Uh, counting on their not knowing what is taught in the Quran and in the Sunnah, the, uh, the teachings of Muhammad. The uh, Quran actually says to fight them, that is the unbelievers, until religion is all for Allah. That is chapter 8, verse 39. Uh, many people would say that that is a spiritual struggle, that one must uh, uh, contend on a spiritual realm with prayer and with charitable activities and so on. 
and that uh, continuing this will ultimately compel the world to convert to Islam, fight them until religion is all for Allah. However, uh, it is very clear from the context, and Islamic scholars will tell you that it's very important to understand the context of the Quran. Uh, the context of that passage, fight them until religion is all for Allah, makes it quite clear that the fight is uh, hot warfare, is warfare with weaponry in order to subjugate the non-Muslims politically under the rule of Islamic law as a political system. One of the primary ways this is clear is from a passage that comes just two verses, two verses later in the Quran. I quoted you, fight them until religion is all for Allah, which is chapter 8, verse 39. Then at chapter 8, verse 41, right in the same passage, it tells Muslims that they must give a fifth of the spoils of war to Muhammad, to the prophet. Now, in a spiritual struggle, there are no spoils of war. Uh, it's very clear, that, therefore, that what the Quran is envisioning is warfare in which the property of the non-Muslims is confiscated and then divided up among the Muslims with the fifth going to the leadership. And this is also clear from the fact that the passage in question comes from a chapter called Al-Anfal, The Spoils of War, and is all about how to distribute those spoils. The Quran also says, uh, kill them wherever you find them in three passages, chapter 2, verse 191, chapter 4, verse 89, and chapter 9, verse 5. Then in chapter 9, verse 29, it says to fight against uh, even the people of the book, which is primarily Jews and Christians, until they paid the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now, uh, you will find Islamic apologists, maybe some of them are with us today, who will tell you that these passages have all been misunderstood by terrorists, that they don't involve religious violence against unbelievers, that they have to do in various metaphorical ways with the spiritual struggle. So in order to answer the question of whether they are correct or whether the terrorists actually do have a theological leg to stand on within Islam, we need to consult the record of Islamic history. This is because obviously the record of Islamic history is the record of how Muslims have understood passages such as the ones I quoted and many others that I could quote if we had time to get into this more deeply. The uh, history of Islam is going to be one of peace and tolerance if it is indeed true that Muslims have understood those passages as enjoining peace and tolerance. Because obviously we can uh, make the reasonable assumption that while there are some Muslims, just as there are members of every other religious tradition, who don't pay attention to it and don't take it seriously and don't apply it in their own lives, there are also others who do take it very seriously and apply it in their own lives. And consequently, if it teaches these things as a matter of the primary focus, that is peace and tolerance, then we'll see peace and tolerance in Islamic history. And if it means that these things are indeed warfare against unbelievers, then that's what we'll see in Islamic history. And that brings us to uh, the, in the, primarily in the first place, the conquest of India, which began with uh, the attacks by Muhammad ibn Qasim on Sindh in the seventh century, in which uh, that passage that I quoted to you about 
Muslims having to fight until the non-Muslims are subjugated and pay the jizya, the tax, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. This uh, passage has to be understood in the first place as applying officially to the people of the book, that is the Jews and the Christians primarily, that's specified in the Quran. But Muhammad ibn Qasim, when he invaded India, he found that of course there were great numbers of Hindus and that the Hindus not being people of the book, they did not have that privilege of paying, so-called privilege of paying this tax, the jizya and feeling themselves subdued, that is submitting to the hegemony of Islamic law and uh, paying the tax and accepting various other humiliating and discriminatory regulations. Uh, as a consequence of that, the jihad in India was especially harsh, harsher than the jihad in Europe and elsewhere, because the uh, choice for the Hindus was essentially convert or die. But Muhammad ibn Qasim found that uh, it was impossible to pursue this because of the large numbers of the Hindus and the refusal of most of them to convert. Uh, and so he, he decided ultimately to grant the Hindus uh, what it was essentially honorary people of the book status and allowed them to accept the secondary position that Islamic law stipulated for the people of the book. However, this was only a, uh, uh, a matter of legal necessity and it did not stop the jihad in India from being particularly violent. And one of the recurring features of this jihad in India was the destruction of temples. Uh, while in many cases in, in Europe and in the Middle East, churches, many churches were destroyed to be sure, and synagogues as well, but many others were left intact. Some were converted to mosques and uh, others were allowed to continue uh, uh, by the uh, Muslim overlords. The Hindus' temples were ultimately uh, destroyed wherever possible. And even worse, uh, in many cases, the, the idols were destroyed, were broken into pieces, and were uh, placed at the, the pieces were placed at the entranceway to mosques so that the Muslims on their way into the mosques would trample upon the broken pieces as they were entering into the mosques. This was designed to be humiliating to the uh, Hindu population in general and to make them understand that uh, as Muhammad, the prophet of Islam is supposed to have said in the Hadith, I have been made victorious through terror. Now it's, Terror is something that is thrown around nowadays, and there are many people who would say, oh, no, 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 he didn't mean terrorism, like uh, flying airplanes into buildings. He may meant the fear of Allah, the awe that one should have before the supreme being. Uh, however, that is clearly false in light of the fact that Islamic texts and traditions clearly depict Muhammad himself as waging war against the unbelievers solely because they were unbelievers. As a matter of fact, when he attacked the Jews at the oasis of Khaibar in Arabia, according to the Sirat Rasulullah, which is the earliest biography of Muhammad, it dates from the ninth century, however, a couple hundred years after he's supposed to have lived, uh, it says that he first listened for the call to prayer from the minarets. And when he didn't hear it, then he attacked. 
because in he in other words he would not have attacked the people if they were muslims but because they were non-muslims and solely on that basis he attacked them it was the same thing in india the uh leaders of the jihad against india were extraordinarily harsh and there are many many examples i could give uh from the book the history of jihad i'll just give a few of course uh for the sake of time but it's uh, important to note right at the beginning that in the year 711 when uh the uh, uh hajjaj ibn yusuf who was the muslim leader in iraq sent muhammad ibn qasim into sin he gave him these instructions he said my ruling is given kill anyone belonging to the combatants arrest their sons and daughters for hostages and imprison them whoever submits grant them protection however muhammad ibn qasim as harsh and, and and brutal as he was actually uh was granting this protection to too many of the hindus and so hajjaj wrote to him at a certain point i am appalled by your bad judgment and astounded by your policies Why are you so intent on giving a man that is the protection even to an enemy whom you have tested and found hostile and intransigent it is not necessary to give a man to everyone without discrimination in any case if the sindhis sincerely request a man and desist from treachery they will stop fighting then income will meet expenditures because of course the 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 sindhis submitting will then be plundered and their uh possessions taken as the spoils of war uh and he says Allah says give no quarter to the infidels but cut their throats then you shall know that this is the command of the great Allah so he is enjoining he's telling him you're not being harsh enough you have to be harsher uh this continues all the way through the history of jihad uh we find the 13th century muslim historian minhaj al-siraj jujjani who is the author of the tabaqati nasiri a history of the rise of islam in india he said that uh mahmud of ghazni who revived the jihad against india in the 11th century he converted so many thousands of idol temples into mosques and uh, broke the idols wherever he could he uh when he defeated the hindu ruler raja jaipal in 1001 the year 1001 he had jaipal quote paraded about in the streets so that his sons and chieftains might see him in that condition of shame bonds and disgrace and that the fear of islam might fly abroad through the country of the infidels now you see the idea of that humiliation is exactly what is said in that statement that's attributed to muhammad i have been made victorious through terror the idea is to terrify the native population to such a deg- degree that they will convert to islam and of course this happened all over the world uh that was the, you, you hear nowadays that islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and while that may not be true if it is true it is not because people are converting in large numbers to islam because they see its w- wonders and they are impressed by its wisdom rather there is large number there is a l- growing number of muslims because of the fact of islamic polygamy and the many many numbers of children that many muslims have that is why it's uh possibly the fastest growing religion but in history there's another factor as well and that is that the state of the non-muslims in the islamic societies was so degraded 
and so difficult with such grinding poverty, harassment and discrimination as stipulated in Islamic law. Remember that verse that I quoted to you before, chapter nine, verse 29 of the Quran, which says fight uh, against the people of the book until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. That passage about feeling themselves subdued became the basis for a superstructure of laws in Islam that enforced that subdued status. The uh, non-Muslims could not hold authority over Muslims, so they could only hold the most menial jobs in society. Uh, this continues in Pakistan. This is one of the reasons why the Christians in Pakistan are nicknamed sweepers, because uh, they only can have these menial jobs like sweeping the streets. They can't have a job where it would involve holding authority over Muslims. And all over the world, in India as well, the uh, Muslims, when they ruled, they would humiliate and disgrace the uh, non-Muslims to the degree that many of them, seeing that they could live a better life simply by converting to Islam, they did convert to Islam. Uh, and so the, it's, it's interesting to note that you take, for example, Egypt. And Egypt at the time of the Muslim conquest was 99% Christian. Uh, now it is about 10% Christian. Now, where did all those Christians go? Did they leave? No, they did not leave. The, the Muslims of Egypt are the former Christians who converted not because they saw that Islam was wonderful, but because it was so hard to live as a Christian in Egypt that ultimately they converted. It's the same thing in India. The Muslims in India and the Muslims in Pakistan are, the, for the most part, the uh, descendants of Hindus who converted because life was so difficult as a Hindu in the Mughal Empire and uh, in the time of uh, the other Islamic rulers in India, it was so hard to live as a non-Muslim that many of them converted. And uh, it was not because the dawah, the Islamic proselytizing was so effective in terms of uh, compelling people by its wisdom. Uh, it is noteworthy that the uh, tribute, the jizya, also had to be paid with the same kind of humiliation. And uh, I will quote the Islamic scholar Kazi Mugisuddin, who uh, answered a question from the 14th century Sultan Alauddin Khalji about uh, the permissibility of allowing the Hindus the dhimmi status that would enable them to pay the jizya. Muhammad ibn Qasim had granted it, as I noted before, but it was still a controversial issue. And uh, this is the ruling of the Qazi Mukhisuddin. Uh, there are payers of tribute, and when the revenue officer demands silver from them, they should without question and with all humility and respect tender gold. You notice that he said, when the ruler asks for silver, the Hindus should pay gold. In other words, they should pay more than is demanded. What happens if they don't pay what is more than what is demanded? Well, he goes on to say, if the officer throws dirt into their mouths, they must without reluctance open their mouths wide to receive it. Because the enforcement of their humiliation, you see, is it's not a, uh, an aberration. It is a, a core feature of this legal status in Islamic law. The glorification of the subordination of the dimmi, rather, the subordination of the dimmi is exhibited in this humble payment and by this throwing of dirt in their mouths. The glorification of Islam is a duty and contempt for, their, for religion is vain. Allah holds them in contempt for he says, keep them in subjection. 
to keep the Hindus in abasement is especially a religious duty because they are the most inveterate enemies of the prophet and because the prophet has commanded us to slay them, plunder them and make them captive. So uh, you see that this is not something that was done as a matter of uh, this, the particular cruelty of individual rulers who were departing from the peace and tolerance taught by Islam in fact. In, uh, in reality, the brutality of the Muslim rulers in India was taught by Islam and was enforced by those Muslim rulers in India as being uh, something that was intrinsic to Islam. Now that is uh, also clear in the uh, life of Akbar the Great and his son Jahangir. Akbar the Great uh, became the ruler uh, in the 17th century, uh, and he was a just as brutal as the other Muslim rulers, the other Mughal Muslim rulers. Uh, but uh, at a certain point, he began to grow disenchanted with Islam himself. And it is noteworthy that the more disenchanted that Akbar became with Islam, the kinder and more just he became toward the Hindu population. His tolerance and his justice was in direct proportion to his loss of Islam. The less Muslim he became, the more humane he became. And uh, this is no accident. His son Jahangir actually beheaded the man who was leading him away from Islam, his teacher who was showing him that there was more to the world than the Quran and Sunnah. And he reasserted uh, Islam in India and reasserted the brutality against the Hindus that had characterized the other Muslim rulers. And it's noteworthy that uh, he actually asked his father at one point, why are you being so nice to the people? And uh, Akbar the Great answered him saying, uh, with all of the human race, with all of God's creatures, I am at peace. Why then should I permit myself under any consideration to be the cause of molestation or aggression to anyone? Besides, are not five parts and six of mankind either Hindus or aliens to the faith? And were I to be governed by motives of the kind suggested in your inquiry, what alternative could I have but to put them all to death? I have thought it therefore my wisest plan to let these people alone. And this was because he, he, he was not a great Muslim. Uh, and so it's unfortunate that his son, instead of following his path, actually uh, repudiated it and reasserted the uh, brutality of all the other Muslim rulers. But I see that time is growing short. So I will just uh, sum up by one note uh, that is of contemporary interest. And that is the very controversial issue of love jihad in India. Uh, it is important to note that that also is proceeding on the basis of Islamic texts and teachings. It is not an aberration, and it is not a cultural phenomenon that has no basis in Islam. In the first place, Islam teaches that uh, Muslim men are allowed to marry non-Muslim women, that is, people of the book, but not Hindus because they are not the people of the book and are unclean, according to the Quran, chapter 9, verse 28, as idolaters. 
and consequently the uh, Hindu woman must convert to Islam in order to marry a Muslim man. And a Hindu woman uh, can marry a Muslim man if she converts, but a Hindu man cannot marry a Muslim woman unless he also converts. And even then it's very difficult because uh, of the background in, this, in, in uh, what is considered to be this unclean tradition. The idea is that always there's a Muslim man who is in charge because then the Muslim community is growing and the Hindu community is diminishing. And the idea is always supremacist that the Hindu community is diminishing at the expense of the Muslim community, which is growing. And so the idea is to bring Hindu women into Islam. And if the Hindu women can't be brought into Islam uh, peacefully, then they can be by force because Islam allows in the Quran for the taking of sex slaves among infidel women. This is very clear in chapter four, verse three, chapter four, verse 24, chapter 23, verses one to six, 33, 50 and 70, 30. I give the citations so that you can check my work and make sure that I'm telling you the truth. The captives of the right hand, which are women who are taken as spoils of war, are allowed to be used sexually by the Muslim men. And so the Hindu women can be taken by force if they can't be persuaded. Uh, and the idea is to have Muslim children. That's the primary goal. And the Muslim father passes on the faith to the Muslim children. So it doesn't ultimately matter if the uh, mother is Hindu. So all of this, the warfare and the love jihad is designed to increase the size of the Muslim community until ultimately it is the ruler of the entire world. That is the goal. Uh, obviously, it is clear that not all Muslims are pursuing it, but like uh, uh, you kindly said in the introduction, quoting me, that the uh, Muslims who are not pursuing this are not stopping those who are. And so we need to be realistic about the fact that what is happening in the world today does have justification within Islam, and that has to be addressed by Muslims and non-Muslims of goodwill if there's ever going to be a stop to it. Thank you very much. And so now if you have questions or uh, uh, comments, I'll be happy to discuss anything. What is this about it being the peaceful religion? That's a very, very uh, clever deception. In the first place, uh, Muhammad is supposed to have said in a Hadith, war is deceit. And he allowed for lying in war. And remember that in Islam, if you're fighting until religion is all for Allah, then you're always at war with the unbelievers until religion is all for Allah. And so if lying is allowed in wartime, lying is allowed to the unbelievers at any time. And the Quran in chapter 3, verse 28, allows for uh, lying to the unbelievers. It says, do not take the unbelievers as your friends in preference to believers, unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them. So if you feel as if there's a threat from the unbelievers, which of course there always is if you're at war, then you can lie to them. You can make them believe that you are on their side when you're not. So the idea that Islam is a religion of peace that is propagated so much among non-Muslims is in the first place to render the non-Muslims complacent so that the war can continue unopposed. But also Islam really is a religion of peace. Now, that may seem absurd after everything I've told you today, but the peace comes from the submission. In Islam, Islam means submission, and it's all about submission. In Islam, the Muslim submits to Allah. The non-Muslim submits to the Muslim. The woman submits to the man. Everything is about submission. 
And once there is total submission, then there's peace. And so it is a religion of peace. It's just that that state of ultimate submission is brought about by violence. And uh, one more question. I have uh, friends in Pakistan uh, who were converted in 47. Some of their mothers were converted or taken in or forcibly converted or whatever. And they're married to Muslims now. And uh, it says that it is not just sexual slavery for captured women. It is also for the wives because... If you do not satisfy your husband's sexual impulses at night and he goes to sleep angry, then the angels will curse you throughout the night. That's correct. That's a hadith in, that is attributed to Muhammad. And so it is absolutely forbidden in Islam for a woman to refuse sexual intercourse to her husband for any reason at any time, under any circumstances. Another hadith says, even if they're on the back of a camel, if he wants to have sex, she has to go ahead. So, uh, yes, the slavery extends to the Muslim wives as well. Namaste, Mr. Spencery. Uh, I have a question. In every society, you have the scholars and you have the intellectuals. In Isla Islamic society, too, we have these scholars, Islamic scholars and Islamic intellectuals, but we often see them as enablers rather than reformers. So is it just my naive uh, thinking or is it actually there? In the West, do you think there is a, you know, is there any change or is it the same everywhere? I think you're absolutely right. It's for the most part true that Islamic scholars and intellectuals around the world are enablers of the jihad rather than genuine reformers. There's a great deal of uh, confusion about Islam and about all these issues we've been discussing. But I think that anyone of goodwill will open the who opens the Quran and reads it attentively, we'll see that it is enjoining warfare against unbelievers. And so these Muslim scholars generally tend to say that the Quran properly understood teaches peace and that Muhammad properly understood teaches peace. Now, that's absolutely absurd. Anyone who reads the Quran will see how absurd it is, but they are counting on non-Muslims not knowing what's in the Quran when they say that. And so they are fostering the complacency I mentioned before, and thereby enabling the jihad. And so it is impossible to see them as genuine reformers. There are a very, very small, there is a very small number of people who are Muslims and say that, yes, Islam teaches warfare, and that needs to be addressed and reformed within Islam. Uh, one of them was my dear friend who passed away several years ago, Tashbi Syed, uh, who was of uh, Pakistani descent. Actually, he was Pakistani. And uh, he readily acknowledged that Muhammad had to be reevaluated as the model for emulation. That is the model for all Muslims to imitate because he taught warfare against and subjugation of unbelievers. But he was a very, very rare voice and a singular voice within Islam. Nilesh Oak who's also a speaker with us, he asked, what are your thoughts about similarities between the conversion obsession of Christians, which is heavily funded, which is a heavily funded effort, and Islamic obsession with converting everyone to Islam? Well, there's one major difference, and I'll start with that, and that is that the Muslims uh, are working on the basis of a statement attributed to Muhammad in which he says, first, you invite the unbelievers to accept Islam. Then if they refuse, you invite them to pay the jizya, 
And then third, if they refuse to pay the jizya, that is submit to Islamic law, then you fight them. So uh, the warfare, the violence is always in the background of the Islamic call to convert. Now, theoretically, and I understand that that's theoretical, theoretically, Christians should not be converting anyone under the threat of violence or under any kind of inducement whatsoever. But I'm well aware that in practice in India, that is in many cases not so. Uh, there are financial inducements or others made, and I think that that is uh, very much like how the Islamic uh, practitioners of dawah, proselytizing, go about their activities, and that that is just as reprehensible. Hi, Robert. Uh, a really interesting talk. I did have two uh, questions uh, about it. I mean, how would you see the role of moderates in tempering the extremism seen in the world today? And uh, more importantly, is there anything such as a moderate within this diaspora? So that would be the first part of my question. And the second one is that except by except China, the left has been co-opted by Islamists right from US to India. And rendering any discussion about extremism and excesses that you touched upon, it's, it's termed as Islamophobia. So, for example, the vitriol against Emmanuel Macron by the left is, uh, you know, and it's tacit support by a lot of the liberal media as well as Hollywood is a prime example. Do you see that changing or, or does it appear to get worse before it gets better? Thank you. Uh, those are two excellent questions. And the first one regarding moderate Muslims. Uh, this term is thrown around a great deal more often than it is defined. And there's a great deal of confusion about it. Most people assume without any evidence, they assume that a moderate Muslim is one who actually rejects in principle jihad warfare and the subjugation of unbelievers. Uh, by that definition, however, there are hardly any moderate Muslims in the world. Because if you believe in the Quran and Sunnah, then you have to believe in the acceptability under certain circumstances of warfare against unbelievers. You might believe that Al-Qaeda or ISIS are uh, misapplying that those teachings of violence, but you believe in principle that it can and should be done in some proper way. If you do not believe that, then you don't fully believe in the Quran and Sunnah. This is not my opinion. This is uh, backed up by the fact that all the sects and all the schools of Islamic jurisprudence, every last one of them without exception, teach that the, the Muslims must wage war against and subjugate unbelievers. And so the idea that there is moderate Islam is not backed up by any teachings of Islam itself. And there is no sect of Islam that teaches that non-Muslims and Muslims should live together in peace as equals in a, in a secular society. There is no such sect. There are sects that are very small and considered heretical, like the Ahmadis, the Ahmadiyya. Uh, the Pakistanis say that they're not even allowed to call themselves Muslims. And one of the reasons for that is because they teach that there shouldn't be violence, but they very much engage in dawah in order to uh, bring the world under the rule of Sharia, which would deny the non-Muslims basic rights. And so they can't be considered moderate in that regard. Uh, and all the others, they, they pretty much all the others teach warfare. Uh, so there are moderate Muslims, but the moderate Muslims that there are for the most part are just Muslims who have other things that they're interested in. That is, Muslims who aren't particularly devout or Muslims who are going about the jihad in a uh, different manner. There is the jihad of the tongue, the jihad of the pen. That is uh, one of the one of the uh, 
jihads could be to convince non-Muslims that Islam is a religion of peace and that you're racist and bigoted if you oppose jihad terror so that non-Muslims don't oppose it. And that's a jihad. But uh, the there are Muslims who want to raise their families and have a job and live ordinary lives. And you could call them moderates. But are they going to stand up and do anything about the jihadis? We don't see that. And for the most part, the it's very telling that the Muslim spokesmen who claim that Islam teaches peace, they spend all their time trying to convince non-Muslims of that. They don't go to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and try to convince them. And that is because they know better. They know that Islam teaches warfare. And they know they can't convince Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Boko Haram or all the rest of them. They know they can convince ignorant non-Muslims. And so they go to them. It's just another, it's a jihad of the pen. Uh, the, then the second question about Macron and the fact that the left is allied with Islam all around the world with the exception of in China. Do I see that as changing? No. Uh, they have a common enemy. Uh, then that enemy is primarily the West today, that uh, the Islam has been set against the West, of course, for 1400 years. And the jihad against Europe, the jihad against Christianity has gone on ever since Islam began, just as the jihad against the Hindus has gone on ever since Islam began. Uh, but the uh, left also wants to destroy Judeo-Christian civilization. And so, as uh, I believe it was Mao said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They see each other as uh, uh, allies because they both hate the West. And uh, it works the same way in India, that uh, the left wants to destroy the historic Indian civilization. Of course, Islam has been set on destroying them for 1400 years, so they're allies. And so uh, I don't think that that's going to change until they end up destroying the West, which they're very close to doing, and uh, end up destroying India, which I think might be a little more difficult. Uh, and that once that happens, once they achieve victory in Europe, for example, which they could do within the next 20 or 30 years, then they'll turn on each other. Uh, we saw that in Iran. The Tuda party, the Marxist party in Iran, uh, under the Shah, they allied with Khomeini. And then when Khomeini instituted the Islamic Republic, he put all the two-day leaders in prison. And so I think we'll see, it's very likely we'll see the same thing happen in Europe, uh, that uh, once in power, the uh, adherents of Sharia will imprison the leftists who have enabled them to get into power. But uh, that will probably, we'll probably see within our lifetimes, maybe not mine, but some of you here uh, will likely see that happen in the next uh, half century. Something that few people know is that there is an episode in Islamic history about apostasy, namely after Muhammad's death, uh, uh, many Arabs uh, left Islam, thought that, well, now the game is over, let's return to normalcy. But the Muslim army didn't see it that way. Uh, so, I mean, anyway, they were killed or, or, or subdued in the end. But today, we see something similar in the um, Muslim world itself. There is more and more apostasy, mostly discreetly, but still. And in the diaspora in Europe, we see quite a few open um, apostates. And, and in fact, often well-informed, 
They have good websites making the case against Islam and so on. Now, do you think that this could be, uh, well, only just a little temporary crisis, as many power wielders in, in Islam think? Or is this the beginning of a, a big scramble for the exit and ultimately the end of Islam? The answer depends really on whether there remain large non-Muslim states uh, that will protect the rights of those who leave Islam. Otherwise, uh, it's going to come up against the same obstacle that apostates from Islam have encountered ever since the wars of apostasy that you mentioned, the Ridda wars that took place uh, according to Islamic tradition right after Muhammad's death in 632. Uh, that is that there's a death penalty for apostasy. According to Islamic tradition, Muhammad died and his successor, the first caliph, Abu Bakr, said, Muhammad is dead. So any of you who followed Muhammad, leave. But any of you who followed Allah, Allah is alive and Islam remains. Many people, however, did leave. He, didn't, he was saying rhetorically that people should leave if they followed Muhammad only. Uh, they did leave and he waged war against them, as Dr. Elston noted, and brought them back into Islam by the year 634. Now, uh, after that, because the traditions of Muhammad were actually formulated quite a bit after the times that they're supposed to have happened, uh, this was codified in the statement attributed to Muhammad, whoever changes his religion, kill him. And it became part of Islamic law that is still taught by all the schools of Islamic jurisprudence, then anybody who leaves Islam is liable for the death penalty. Many Muslims have been able to leave Islam in the West because it's harder to carry out the death penalty for an apostate in the West when you can get arrested and thrown into prison for doing so. And uh, that's still a deterrent to some degree, at least for some people. So there are large numbers of apostates in the West and there are even larger numbers, very likely, of secret apostates in Muslim states. Uh, I had a uh, colleague a few years back, we co-wrote a book together, Daniel Ali, who was a Kurdish convert from Islam. And he told me that there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of former Muslims in Kurdistan and in Turkey and in Syria and in other Muslim entities. And they didn't announce, of course, that they were not Muslim because then they would be liable to be killed by anybody on the street. But they nonetheless were not in the thing anymore. And that is a sign of hope. It could happen that that will reach a certain point that uh, they're no longer able to maintain this state of terror that keeps everybody in line. Uh, as a matter of fact, the most prominent Islamic sheikh in the world, uh, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, uh, who is the sheikh of the Muslim Brotherhood, he's very old now, but he's still very popular. Uh, for years, he has had an internationally popular television program in which he explains what is lawful and what is prohibited in Islam. And he actually said quite forthrightly that if the uh, death penalty for apostasy had not been there, there would be no more Islam today. And so uh, the more that there are non-Muslim states that are, uh, well, no non-Muslim state explicitly protects the rights of non-Muslims, but protects them indirectly simply by having penalties for murder that are applied. Whereas if a, if a Muslim state has penalties for murder, for the most part, somebody who murders an apostate is not gonna be prosecuted for that. 
uh, as long as such states continue, then there is hope that this could grow into an even larger movement and make a big difference in the world. Thus far, of course, it hasn't, but can't be ruled out. How exactly does Europe react or the US react to this love jihad? Is there an equivalent of that in that place? How, how, oh, love jihad? Uh, oh, it's a terrible thing. Uh, the record of the West is absolutely abysmal in this. Uh, you, the worst in the worst instance of it is Britain. Uh, in Britain, there have been thousands, probably tens of thousands, of uh, girls and young women who have been abducted and uh, forced into prostitution or essentially sex slavery by Muslim gangs, uh, as well as uh, Hindu and Sikh girls in Britain. And this has gone on for years, for decades it has gone on. And British authorities, for the most part, have done nothing. For, the, for many years, they denied it was happening. For many years, the people who called attention to it, like the notorious Tommy Robinson, he was one of the only ones who did. And he was vilified, he was called an Islamophobe, he was called a racist. And there were many, many leftist groups in Britain and even government agencies and police who would say it is only racist Islamophobic bigots who are saying that Muslims are engaging in this activity. And the activity was almost exactly like virtually the same as what is called love jihad in India. And it was all the fault of those who called attention to it. But ultimately, stories began to come out. And it began to come out that police officials had been derelict in their duty and had uh, turned away numerous complaints, girls coming to them for help, parents coming to them for help, because uh, they said it was racist to do anything about it, because they knew that it was Muslim gangs who were doing it. Now, even now that it has become common knowledge that tens of thousands of girls have been victimized in this way, even now, the government maintains denial about it. It's absolutely appalling. There was a liberal MP, a member of the Liberal Party, a member of the shadow cabinet, Sarah Champion, an influential politician, who actually dared to note that the majority of the people running these rape gangs were Pakistanis. She didn't even say they were Muslim. She claimed falsely that many of them were Pakistani Christians. There was no evidence of any Pakistani Christians ever being involved in this activity. And, but she said this, and she said it was Pakistanis. And she, there was such an uproar because she said it was Pakistani. She was forced to resign from the shadow cabinet and was widely vilified as racist. Now, the fact is, this is not a Pakistani phenomenon. Yes, it is mostly Pakistani uh, Muslims who are doing this. But there have also been Somali rape gangs and rape gangs of other ethnicities. The commonality that they have is not their ethnicity. The commonality that they have is that they're all Muslims. But nobody in Britain has dared to say that. Sarah Champion went farther than anybody else in saying they were Pakistanis. But nobody dares say that they're Muslims and nobody dares point out that they're doing this on the basis of Islamic principles. A few of the victims have said, the rapist would quote Quran to me and then rape me. The rapist told me that this was the way he prayed to Allah was to rape me. These are statements of the girls who have been victimized. But even so, 
they have fallen on deaf ears. And recently there was a report made by the British government of the makeup of these rape gangs. And there were a lot of people who thought now finally the truth will come out. And then the government suppressed the report and refused to publicize it after it had promised it would make it public. And uh, ultimately under pressure, it ultimately released the report a few months ago. And the report actually says that uh, white non-Muslim males are responsible for most of the rape gangs. Now, this, is, this was absolutely false. There was no basis for this in the reality of all the cases that had been prosecuted. In other words, the ones we actually have hard data about the names of the people who were involved, and they were overwhelmingly Muslim. The non-Muslim names were almost all Muslim converts or people who were caught up into the uh, Muslim subculture in Britain. And this was all covered up. It's still covered up in Britain and it's still even going on in Britain and nothing is being done. So the fact that there's a law in India that explicitly names this is extraordinary progress and is much, much farther ahead of anything being done in Europe. In Europe, there's still denial uh, about this to an appalling degree. And the phenomenon is still happening to an appalling degree because of the cowardice of politicians who want to have the Muslim vote and want to avoid being called racists. Good evening. Uh, my question is, since France has uh, introduced the anti-Islamic radicalism bill, what is the possibilities of other European nations following suit? In the first place, what France is doing is extraordinarily important. And this is one of the reasons why they're getting so much outrage from uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, and Imran Khan in Pakistan. Uh, they're so upset with France because this is the first time that any European country has even come close to identifying the actual problem as being Islam, Islamic Jihad. They have, other, up to now, treated every Jihad terrorist in Europe, and there have been many, as criminals, as individual criminals, as a, a, a random person stabs random people on the street, as if this kind of thing happens among non-Muslims all the time. Uh, and they never put together the fact that the stabbers were all Muslims and the victims all non-Muslims. So now for the first time, France is actually, even though they're, they're, they're still maintaining the same fictions about it that the West maintains universally, and that is the French interior minister has insisted that we're fighting against Islamism and not Islam, as if there were a real distinction between the two, which there's not. Islamism is a Western fiction that doesn't have any basis in Islamic law or in Islamic scripture. Uh, but even though he says that, they're still speaking about Islamic or Islamist, at least, radicalism and acknowledging that there is some Islamic component to this. And so... That is a possibility. There is definitely a possibility that other countries in Europe will follow France's lead in this. Maybe it just took one to break the logjam, and that remains to be seen. Uh, but Britain is very, very far gone. And as you noted, there's a Muslim mayor of London who's very influential. There's a large and growing population of Muslims in Britain. And so I can tell you, for example, that there is uh, uh, the British politician Nigel Farage, who you may, be, uh, may have heard of. He is the uh, impetus behind Brexit 
and he is the only politician in Britain who's standing up against the mass migration that continues with boatloads of uh, Muslim migrants coming primarily from North Africa and uh, arriving across the English Channel from France. And uh, he's the only one speaking out against them. But even he says Islam is a religion of peace and uh, we have to not be careful not to be Islamophobic and all that. Now, when that is the case, when the strongest politician in your country is weak on this issue, then there's no hope. Uh, I will never say there's no hope in an absolute sense, because history is full of surprises and you never know what may happen in Britain tomorrow. But right now, there's no one in Britain who's standing up against the jihad. And that means that if things continue as they are, Britain will be conquered. What to do about the left? How to counter the left? They are a bigger enemy than Islam. He means communists. Yes, I understand. You're quite right. They are. Uh, we wouldn't be having this problem with Islam if it weren't for the left. They are the ones who have enabled the rise of the jihad in the modern age. And uh, the situation is growing very, very serious because uh, right now the left in the United States is engaged in attempting to uh, <clears throat> uh, attempting to portray all the supporters of former President Trump as supporting of what they claim to be a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, and uh, essentially to criminalize their opposition in that way. Uh, obviously, they're, they're likely not to be able to do that uh, without uh, severe pushback. But uh, with the left controlling the means of communication that are primary in the world today, the uh, social media giants, restricting the speech of those who dissent from their agenda, it gets increasingly difficult to uh, even say anything that is opposed to them. And so how can we defeat the left in the first place? We have to regain control of some means of communication that have some large extent or, uh, some, uh, or a meaningful voice on the means of communication that exist. That is absolutely essential. That's the first job. Otherwise, if we're, if we're, mute, then we're defenseless and can be led dumb, like dumb sheep to the slaughter. One is, uh, what are two, three specific things, small, big, that Hindus can do to reverse the onslaught of Islam in India, number one. And second question, this is my observation that a lot of wholesale markets, at least in India, where I am, are captured by Muslims is what I feel. Uh, for example, uh, the chocolate raw materials industry, the beauty products industry, the textiles industry, uh, the glass industry. I mean, is this my observation or is there really something conniving happening over there? I would like to understand. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you. In the first place, what can individuals do? Uh, that is a question that I get so many times and ultimately only the individual can answer it because you know your abilities and your talents and your time and so on. But I can say in general that one of the main things that needs to be done in India and all around the world is to counter wherever you are, the barrage of propaganda that we are inundated with all the time that uh, you certainly encounter practically every day. And that is not to be afraid to speak up and to speak out. And when you hear uh, on, on television or in these, on social media, people saying Islam is a religion of peace and so on, and that we should, uh, uh, this love jihad business is fictional and so on, that you counter them with the truth and never let these things go unchallenged. Uh, the more we challenge them, the less they will be able to uh, 
assert their hegemony uh, without any uh, uh, difficulty. Obviously, the more challenges they have, the more then they are knocked back and then they have to justify their uh, positions, which, of course, they can't do intellectually. So that's the one thing. Uh, the other thing in regard to the products, yes, there is a concerted effort to gain control of various industries, to make sure that all meat is halal, to, uh, that's in the West, of course, to uh, make sure that all the, the, that there are no alternatives. For example, if you go to New York, uh, you want to ride a cab or an Uber, you're going to be riding with a Muslim driver. There aren't any others. There used to be, but they've cornered the market. You want to go to the street corner food stand and they're all halal. You can't find them that aren't. Uh, and this is, uh, you can try to support the alternative businesses wherever possible, if they can be found. But above all, then you need to try to call attention to it. So that if there are, I don't, I'm not familiar with Indian law to the extent that I know that if there are monopoly laws, but if they can be uh, brought to bear on these things, then they should be. And uh, it's the same thing in the West. But of course, we have the problem that there are very clear monopolies in the world today that are not being challenged with existing antitrust statutes, like uh, the social media giants are clear monopolies in the West. There are laws against this in the United States, but nobody, has the, nobody dares to enforce them. So until that situation changes, the only thing we can try to do is support politicians who might remotely be helpful. But uh, it's so easy for politicians to be bought. And there's so many who are bought today. So there is a progressiveness in uh, Saudi Arab and UAE for the women rights and all. So do you think that in future, uh, there would be something, a uh, fight between them and we will see a new progressive Islam instead of jihad in Islam? And my second it's question is, like uh, we have seen the, the future is of artificial intelligence. And it is quite sure that uh, in the, uh, the people who will suffer artificial intelligence would be the lower class, that who drive the akar, or you can say the lower class. So the, these Muslims will be one of the main sufferers in that. So do you think that uh, this progressiveness will destroy it? And my last third question is, like we have an Indian Sadhguru there, Okay, he always says that to this is time that we have all the things. So uh, there might be a possibility of a God comes in 21st century. He means he always says that today we have all the things, we have internet and all. So do you think a God will come on and have something? Like I wish I knew. Uh, the, the third question, I'm sorry. I, I, that's beyond my confidence. Uh, I certainly hope that uh, there will be divine help for us. Um, that's something we should all hope for, but we can't uh, wait for it in the sense that we sit back and assume that everything is going to be all right. Uh, I find that among Christians, you know, in the West, when I've spoken to Christian groups, uh, many times people have said, oh, we don't have to worry about this because uh, Jesus is going to protect us. And I say to them, look, uh, at the time of the Muslim conquests, the Middle East, Syria, uh, Egypt, it was North Africa, it was all Christian, and it was all conquered. So you, you, it, it's, it's, it's important to hope for and to pray for divine help, but not to become complacent. Uh, the uh, artificial intelligence is certainly going to hit 
uh, people in uh, the jobs that the artificial intelligence will replace. But one of the benefits of having these monopolies that we were just discussing is that you're amassing capital that you can use then to place the people in other positions. Uh, in other words, these, these, uh, the, 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 the fruit sellers that you mentioned, they're not all individuals. They're tied into a network that's going to take care of them in some other way if that dries up. So I'm not, I don't think artificial intelligence is going to make any difference uh, to the Islamic Jihad. Uh, the financing is not primarily coming from that and it will not be suffering if it goes away. Uh, and finally, the UAE and Saudi Arabia modernizing. Uh, this, is, this is true and this is altogether positive. We can hope that it will result in some major change, but it's important to remember that in the history of jihad, and you can read about it in the history of jihad, if you'll pardon my mentioning the book again, the history of jihad shows uh, that all throughout Islamic history, there are times when there are Muslims like Akbar the Great who relax Islamic provisions and go away from Islamic law. And then there are always Muslims like Jahangir who come along after him and reassert them because they blame any trouble in the society on the lack of Islam. And you see this in Pakistan all the time. If there's a natural disaster, if there is something that happens that is bad in the society, then the Muslim rulers say, the, the clerics rather say, this is because we have offended Allah and we have to redouble our efforts to please Allah. And so the fanaticism becomes even more virulent. This is a, a recurring theme throughout history, that it's kind of a pendulum, that the pendulum swings away from Islamic law because people don't like to live under Islamic law. Even Muslims don't like to live under Islamic law. It is strict and inhumane. It is brutal and violent. And so human nature being the same everywhere, there are always times in history when Muslims have left Islamic law. But then there are always times in history when the Muslim leaders say, we are having problems because we left Islamic law and we have to get it back. And so there are the Saudis and the UAE are going away right now and later they'll go back. Uh, Ravi Sharmas, my question is, why are there so many educated and rich Muslims joining the ISIS in Europe and Kerala? They're joining it because it's Islamic. They're joining it because it's not a twisting and hijacking of Islam as we're always told. They're joining it because they read the Quran and they read the life of Muhammad and they see wage war against unbelievers and establish a caliphate with the hegemony of Islamic law. And they see ISIS working to do that. They did it for a few years until they lost their caliphate in Iraq and Syria. And they're trying to do it again. They're establishing uh, another caliphate now in Mozambique and uh, uh, working in East Africa as well as in West Africa to establish uh, areas where they are in charge, they have a political control, and then that will become the new caliphate or new caliphates. The, uh, this is all in the Quran. This is all in the Sunnah. So an educated Muslim a physician, a lawyer, whatever, he reads the same Quran. And so he's, he's just as likely to join these, actually more likely than uneducated Muslims, because the educated Muslim is more likely to know very well what's in the Quran and Sunnah. Remember that in the madrasas in Pakistan, Arabic is not the first language. So they memorize the Quran, but they don't know what it says. 
because they don't speak Arabic as their native language. So actually the Muslim who knows what's written in the Quran is going to be more likely to join jihad than one who's just repeating it all by rote. Obviously many Pakistanis join the jihad because they're told what's, what it says and they know as well. But what my, the point I'm making is that educated Muslims are just as susceptible, if not more so, to the call of jihad. As Europe and US and, uh, you know, a lot of countries around the world are thankfully still democracies. Why can't such uh, controversial, uh, basically, paragraphs be uh, challenged in court of laws? And uh, probably we might have a moderate uh, uh, version of that book. You mean like the Calcutta Quran petition? Yes, right, right, right. Yes, yes. That was a marvelous initiative. I admire that a great deal. And uh, I have thought that something like that should be done in the West. But, uh, well, there's several problems. One is uh, nobody is interested, legal authorities are not interested in challenging a holy book. The First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States says that uh, there will be no uh, infringement upon the freedom of religion. And it's unbelievable, but it's true that there are many Americans who believe that it would be infringing upon Muslims' freedom of religion to challenge jihad violence. Because if jihad violence is taught in the Quran, then it's part of their religion and we have to just let them do it. And so you can't challenge the Quran. It's taken for granted that the Quran is a holy book that preaches uh, love and peace and tolerance and magnanimity. And so we have... uh, the Congresswomen Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib taking their oath of office on the Quran and so on. And the people think this is wonderful because it shows that we're a multicultural society. Uh, and they don't know what's in the Quran and they don't care. They, I have said that uh, it's unwise for elected officials to take their oath of office on the Quran because the Quran teaches that you can lie to unbelievers as, as I mentioned, I believe in the talk, chapter 3, verse 28, do not take unbelievers as your friends and preference to believers unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them. And uh, a, a companion of Muhammad is quoted in a hadith as saying, this means we smile in the faces of some people, but behind their backs we curse them. That's not a book on which you should swear to tell the truth. And so I've pointed this out and then I just get called a racist. Uh, it's, it's just no, no genuine discussion of these issues. And there's never been in the American public uh, debate any discussion of the fact that Islam has doctrines of deceit of unbelievers and consequently it's not a good book to swear in on. Nobody cares. And so uh, there is no discussion in the West of these passages and no possibility of legal challenge. However, it remains true that a Muslim who believes in and acts upon the teachings of the Quran is going to end up violating American laws. Uh, nobody cares. Uh, while we're talking about what is wrong or where Islam is going or, uh, you know, where the left is going, do you think we also need to think where the West is going? Because uh, if I look at it today, West succumbed to Christianity and now it looks like they're ready for the Islamization. And uh, so if it comes to waging wars, they can wage wars. But when it comes to ideological uh, uh, discourse, they, it seems as if West is so defenseless. Uh, why do you think that? Is it because it's easy to ignore? Do you think it is the Abrahamic affinity? 
or, or do you see something else as a as an issue here? I don't think it's uh, a problem with Christianity, uh, primarily because when the West was Christian, it was actually strong against the jihad, and it's only become weak against the jihad when it discarded Christianity. This is partly because nature abhors a vacuum, and uh, once you discard a relig your religion and you have no meaning to your life, then you're going to take up something else. And so uh, many people, of course, are communists. The Democratic Party and the entire left, religion is their politics, or their, their politics is their religion, rather. And they, uh, they, uh, make, they make a god out of their political policies. Meanwhile, then, of course, there's the, uh, the rise of Islam in Europe and the United States, much lesser degree to, in the United States, but still nonetheless happening. This is also uh, characterized by the fact that nature abhors a vacuum. Young people look for meaning in their lives. They see this uh, belief system that has a very definite understanding of how the world works and that is appealing to them amid all the uh, rootlessness and meaninglessness in the life in the West these days. So, uh, this is one of the reasons why the West is defenseless right now and why they're likely to be, in the first place, authoritarian secular states, and then probably Islam uh, in the coming decades and centuries in the West. I don't see the uh, secular societies remaining. They don't have any inner strength. And uh, it's very clear also that even if they did have any inner strength in any theoretical way, they've lost it in the face of the uh, claims that to resist jihad and Islamization is racist and Islamophobic and is the worst thing in society. And so uh, Britain, for example, Britain, of course, is very far gone and almost dead. But uh, Britain, uh, you noted that I was barred from the country and I've never advocated any violence or criminal activity, uh, never been charged with or convicted of any crime, never advocated any terrorism or approved of any terrorism, on and on, just a... a an analyst of the Quran and Islam. I believe in law, lawful solutions, the enforcement of the rule of law and so on. But I'm not allowed in Britain. But meanwhile, they admit Islamic jihad preachers all the time. And recently, a man who was convicted of uh, trying to kill the uh, prime minister, the president of Egypt, I believe it was, because uh, in the name of jihad and Islam, he was allowed to stay in Britain, but I'm not allowed in. And so you see, this is the problem that uh, the West faces, that the resistance to jihad has been so stigmatized and demonized. If you, if you do a search on my name, the first thing that will come up with is the Southern Poverty Law Center saying I'm an extremist, and uh, 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 which means a terrorist, essentially. And... Uh, this is only for opposing jihad terror. And the idea is for that coming up first in Google so that people will hate what I am and hate me and what I stand for. And they won't make the mistake of opposing jihad terror. So how are you going to uh, fight against it in that way? So uh, right now we're seeing the descent of authoritarian state, the authoritarian socialist state. And I think that will ultimately give way to the Sharia state.
uh, one could opine that a global coalition is needed and that the United States would be a very important ally. Now, speaking to that, I mean, many in the American intelligence community recognize and appreciate the extremist threat, both globally and lo- locally. In terms of locally, you know, Dearborn in Michigan <clears throat> is a prime example. Uh, however, there seems to be a political inertia around this. You know, Democrats seem to go in appeasement mode and Republicans generally replace less, uh, less excessive regimes with more extremist ones. You know, like Iraq under Bush is, is one example. And even under a democratic regime, uh, what happened with Libya? So why aren't uh, successive uh, governments, both Republican and Democrat, unable to come up with a consistent, actionable policy in this regard? I wish I knew, but I can tell you that uh, in the first place, the coalition is much needed. You're quite right. I've called for a coalition of non-Muslim states to resist the jihad for decades. But of course, that's Islamophobic. So uh, this is the reason why the Democrats and the Republicans are both hopeless on this issue, because resistance is Islamophobic. Uh, It's the same answer that I just gave. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have been completely compromised and are uh, have completely submitted to the idea that Islam is a religion of peace, that you're hateful and bigoted if you think otherwise, and that we must help moderate Muslims. Now, who are the moderate Muslims that they're helping? There are, in the first place, no major Muslim organizations in the United States that are not linked in some way to the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is dedicated in its own words, according to a captured internal document, to eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house. So they are collaborating with organizations that do not have the best interests of the United States at heart, but they have no clue about this. And while law enforcement has been able to stop terror plots on a local level, it can only do that because it does not identify the people properly. It can track them. It can stop them. And that's all to the good. We are all grateful for that. But in the meantime, the leaders of these same law enforcement agencies have to stand up and say, this person had nothing to do with Islam and Islam is peaceful. And here we are at the mosque doing outreach. So they can only even resist terrorism by pretending in the first place that it has nothing to do with its actual ideological roots. And that's only going to be disastrous in the long run. You said that, uh, you know, when you leave your religion, you are left bare and then you might go on the wrong path and the Islamists might take you on their path. So uh, I would like to know your views upon a certain section of YouTubers who claim to be uh, ex-Muslims and, uh, you know, they somehow preach atheism uh, through their channels. And is that a form of al-taqiyya or taqiyya, as you say, deception to uh, remove you from your religion and then probably move on to a path? In the first place, I just wanted to note that there are many converts to Islam in the West who become jihad terrorists because they take the text seriously and they are trying to embrace their religion fully. There are not many converts to Islam in the West, but many there is a large proportion of those who are who do turn to jihad. Uh, now, as far as these ex-Muslims go, it's a very strange phenomenon, and I'm not really sure what's happening. I can tell you uh, that there are many ex-Muslims who are very courageous and have said very important things. For example, uh, Ibn Warak, my dear friend, who is the author of a book, Why I'm Not a Muslim, and he is an ex-Muslim. His family, actually, he's from, I believe, from the Gujarat area, 
and uh, he has written many, many very important books, What the Quran Really Says, The Quest for the uh, Historical Muhammad, The Origins of the Quran, Leaving Islam. And in Leaving Islam, he profiles a number of uh, ex-Muslims who are sincere in having left Islam, as he is, and are uh, working to raise awareness about the nature and the magnitude of the threat of jihad and Sharia oppression. Then on the other hand, there are the ex-Muslims that you mentioned, uh, like Abdullah Samir. Abdullah Samir is an ex-Muslim uh, who I encountered some time ago. He's a YouTuber, and I happened to see some of his videos, and I thought he's very good. So I reached out to him and uh, told him that I uh, liked his work and uh, invited him to read my book, uh, The History of Jihad. I sent it to him. Uh, and. Uh, <clears throat> We were, I thought, very friendly until then he started to uh, uh, attack me for a Jihad Watch post in which I had, Jihad Watch is my uh, news website in which I track jihad activity around the world. And I noted that there was a man who, uh, a Muslim who went to Germany, a migrant, and he killed his wife in Germany. I believe I might have it backwards. I think he killed his wife in the Netherlands and then went to Germany and killed another wife. Uh, in any case, I might not have the details of the story straight at this point, but the point is that Abdullah Samir charged me with claiming that Islam allows one to kill one's wife. And even when I explained to him that in my Jihad Watch post, I actually didn't say that, but I had said that Islam allows one to beat the wife. That's in chapter four, verse 34 of the Quran, that you can beat a woman from whom you fear disobedience. She doesn't even have to be disobedient. You just fear she's going to be disobedient. You can beat her that that allows for a culture of violence in which somebody might get killed ultimately, because it doesn't say beat her lightly as many of the whitewashed versions of the Quran in the West say, it doesn't say lightly in the Arabic. And so anyway, he went on to denounce me and it was very interesting in his denunciations of me, which were just like the denunciations by Muslims that I was racist and bigoted and Islamophobic and so on. It's interesting to note several things. One was, there was a burning of the Quran in Sweden. I don't believe in the burning of any book, especially the Quran. I believe people should read it rather than burn it and know what's in it and then guard themselves against those who believe it. But there was a burning of the Quran, and that's a matter of the freedom of expression in, in, in the West. If you don't have the freedom of expression, then you have a protected class that is absolved from all criticism. And if you have a protected class that cannot be criticized, then they can do whatever they want to you and you have no recourse. So you have a tyranny. And so if you can't burn the Quran in the West, then you don't have a free society. And so I was arguing all this and Abdullah Samir said, no, it's terrible. These Islamophobes, they burnt the Quran in Sweden. And I thought, how can you be an ex-Muslim and know what's in the Quran and even be attacking it yourself? And yet, you object when these people burn the Quran. It's not consistent. And then what was most telling was he uh, is coming after me on Twitter. And then uh, some people who support my work on Twitter were answering him. And some of them were Indians. And he said, why do you have so many Hindu followers? And I said, what's the matter with Hindu followers? What, what, what's the problem here? Spell it out. And of course he wouldn't, but it was very clear that... Uh, he is from a background 
that is, he was from Kenya, I believe, but he's from a background, of course, that's Pakistani or Indian, ultimately, and uh, he hates the Hindus. And so you think, why, why, wait a minute, he's an ex-Muslim, he should have left his attitudes behind, and that would mean he shouldn't hate Hindus any more than anybody else. And so I have to, I don't know what's up with Abdullah Samir, and there are others like him. He has a friend, Ali Rizvi, who's the same. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's one of two things. It could be Takiyah, as you said. They could still be Muslims, and they're pretending to be non-Muslims to fool non-Muslims into thinking that the real critics of Islam, like me, or like Ibn Warak, for that matter, are terrible. That could be one thing, so that they think we really shouldn't criticize Islam. Or they are simply not consistent thinkers and they have held over their attitudes and assumptions that they learned as Muslims. And so they continue to hate Hindus and they continue to think the Quran, it's terrible when somebody uh, desecrates it. I saw Abdullah Samir on a video with David Wood, the brilliant Christian apologist. And David is, is a wild man. He's uh, a very entertaining individual. And he, he, was, he had the Quran on this video with Abdullah Samir and he tore a piece of the Quran and ate it. And <laughs> I wouldn't eat a book because it's not food. But in any case, uh, he did this. And Abdullah Samir, you should have seen him. The, uh, the rage, the cold rage that was on his face. It was astonishing. And I thought, you're an ex-Muslim and you care about the Quran being desecrated? This is very strange. But I don't know. I don't know what he ultimately, whether he's a real ex-Muslim who's just a, a fabulously foolish, inconsistent thinker, or whether he's a liar. I don't know. He's certainly a bigot. Could you advise us, what are the points we should look at while identifying a true ex-Muslim and a fake ex-Muslim? This is a very important issue. And uh, another one that I can name who is uh, a very suspect ex-Muslim is a woman in Britain, uh, Maryam Namazi, who is from Iran. And she uh, uh, is a very, very vociferous critic of Israel and has claimed that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. Now, the idea that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians is an invention of the Palestinian propagandists. It works in much the same way as the propagandists in Kashmir work and claim that the Indian army is committing atrocities that end up being fabricated by propagandists. And it's a very, it's a very common tool of jihadists everywhere. The same thing was done in Myanmar with the Rohingyas. Uh, and it only came out later that it was they who were provoking the violence and they who had caused uh, most, most of the trouble and that the, the, the claims of atrocities by the Rohingya, by the, uh, sorry, by the Myanmar army were in many cases fabricated. This is, it, it, this happens throughout the world, but Israel is the primary forum in which this takes place. The Palestinian propaganda machine is extremely sophisticated and it has the sanction of the international media and the international human rights community. The UN is always condemning Israel for human rights violations and so on while saying nothing about Iran and uh, China and real human rights violators. So when you come to your ex-Muslims, do they hate Israel like Miriam Namazi? Do they claim that it commits genocide? Or do they support Israel because it's on the front lines of the global jihad? That is one major way to tell.
which side they're on. The others are uh, some things that I've already mentioned. Uh, will they support people who desecrate the Quran in the name of the freedom of expression? Do they hate Hindus in India or support Hindus in India in their struggle against the jihad? Th these are the ways, th this is how you can always know. And uh, invariably the, the, the ex-Muslims who are enabling the jihad in various ways, whether because they're idiots or because they're actually not ex-Muslims at all, they will support the jihad against Hindus, support the jihad against Israel. The next question is related to this. Ramesh Babu asks, why is it that some Christian organizations support Muslims in India? Because they're short-sighted, because they have no idea about Islam and jihad, because they believe that Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, there are, I see it all the time because I track the news on jihad activity at Jihad Watch. And so I see it all the time in the United States, Christian organizations holding conferences and they invite Muslim speakers to tell them about Islamophobia and about how uh, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. And so they go to India, it's the same thing. They feel an affinity for the Muslims more than with the Hindus because the Muslims are monotheists and they think that they are kindred and the Muslims foster this themselves by quoting the Quran chapter 29 verse 46 which says say to the people of the book your Allah and our Allah are one that is we have the same God and Christians believe this as a matter of fact the Catholic Church has said that uh, officially at the Second Vatican Council which was the uh, a matter of very high authority in the Catholic Church in the 1960s they said that uh, uh, Muslims together with us adore the one God and so I have spoken to Catholics all around the country and found them some who say, not all, but some who say, we, uh, we, have, we can't be talking about these things about Islam because we all worship the same God. And they think that this somehow means we can't resist jihad and Islamization. They don't care about the persecution of Christians in Pakistan or in Nigeria or anywhere else. They only care that they think they have some great ally against secularism and maybe in India against the Hindus. But it's, uh, it's completely illusory and they will ultimately find that out because they will find that their great friends and allies turn on them because they will find that they are not exempt from the jihad. Again, a similar question. Why is it that the Muslim nations ignored the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China? Probably for real politic reasons for reasons of short-sighted political calculation, that uh, they don't want to antagonize China and end up having China as an enemy when China is one of the most powerful countries in the world. As a matter of fact, now that China owns the United States, what's left? So uh, with the Biden victory, China victory, it's a China victory. And so you're not going to antagonize them. But uh, ultimately, China is going to discover as well that they might be very deeply repressive against the Uyghurs. The jihad against China will not end with that. Two similar questions. One says, do you see any awakening among Muslims? And if not, then what is the option left with non-Muslims? And the second is, do you foresee, uh, will there ever be an Islam-free world? Do I think that there's an awakening? I think I discussed that before with the uh, secret Muslims, the I'm sorry, the secret ex-Muslims around the Islamic world. There are a great many of them, nobody knows how many, because of the death penalty for apostasy, 
but there are many, hundreds of thousands at very least. And so that could make a big difference. We'll see, we can hope. I'm sorry, what was the second part? Do you ever foresee a, an Islam-free world? No. Uh, I mean, I sorry, but y- y- as long as there are people who believe in the Quran, there will be jihad. And there are right now well over a billion people who believe in the Quran. They're not all going to convert or give it up. So it will always be a problem. Whether it will always be a major problem, I don't know. Maybe someday there will be a minor group of people of Muslims somewhere who are still waging jihad in their small redoubt. Maybe that will happen. We'll see. Uh, That would involve a very great change in the world, such that there would be actual willingness to engage Islam on doctrinal issues and try to convert Muslims to other faiths, uh, which is not happening right now, on, on any large scale anyway.